Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. One of the hottest topics in recent years for the MAN program at NASA is whether the agency should return to the moon, where they've already been, or whether they should just proceed straight to Mars. Part of what makes this a hot topic are a couple of thorny issues relating to the science, launch hardware, international competition, national security, shrinking budgets, and political will, to name a few. Today, we're airing the Hayden Planetarium's 2010 Isaac Asimov debate, hosted by the Planetarium's director, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Panelists Kenneth Ford, Lester Lyles, Paul Spudis, Stephen Squires, and Robert Zubrin will hash it out. I just want to thank uh, Janet Jepson Asimov, uh, Isaac Asimov's widow, and other family members and relatives who are present with us this evening. Thank you. This is not only the 10th annual Isaac Asimov debate, it is the 10th anniversary of the Rose Center we opened to the general public 10 years ago. It's also the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Hayden Planetarium, founded in October 1935. If you check your calendars, we'll have events to celebrate that this coming October. It's also the 80th anniversary of the discovery of Pluto. (laughs) Get over it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, This event this evening is a conversation. We call it a debate, but it's not like any debate you see on CNN or anywhere else where everyone gets their allocated time, and then there's a rebuttal, and then another rebuttal. That's not how we're going to conduct this. After brief introductory remarks that each panelist will make, we then go into a conversation mode as though we're all just, the six of us are like at a bar, and you are eavesdropping on our conversation as we hammer out what our best understanding is for the future of space exploration in America. So that's how we, this will unfold, just, to, just, just so you have an alert. And in that way, you get to see scientists not giving prepared remarks. You get to probe the wiring of the minds of brilliant people and see where those random thoughts come and where they go. So let us begin our introductions. Coming out first is four-star Air Force General Lester Lyles. Lester, come on out. Lester Lyles, an Air Force General, highly decorated and a trusted advisor of multiple presidents. He and I served on a couple of commissions in the service of the country trying to understand what the future of space should be. And he has a lot to share with us, not only about his, the advising he does to presidents, but of the role of the military's interest in space, something we don't typically uh, get in these venues. Uh, next, we have Kenneth Ford. Kenneth Ford, come on out. He is the... Thank you. Kenneth Ford is the chairman of the NASA Advisory Council. 
He's a technologist by training, specialist on the intersection of human and robotic interfaces. He is the chair of the NASA Advisory Council, which is the closest thing NASA has to a board. So if we don't like what NASA's doing, we can just blame him, I think. <laughs> Not really. Uh, next, if you have any knowledge of Mars at all, you know this man. In fact, if you have telescopes and look at Mars, his face is in Mars. I'm certain <laughs> that's his face. Uh, Bob Zubrin, Robert Zubrin, come on out. Bob Zubin is the founder and past president of the Mars Society, which is an organization of extremely uh, Mars uh, fans of Mars, Mar people who will reorganize their lives in support of getting people to Mars. And Bob Zubin is the head of that movement. We couldn't have this event without him. Uh, moving on, we have the man who knows more about the moon than anybody I know, uh, his name, uh, I call him Moon Spudis. His name is Paul Spudis. Come on out, Paul. I joke with him. I, th I think he knows a little too much about the moon because you start a conversation about Saturn and the next sentence it lands on the moon. But we need that because uh, the moon is a little more distant today than it was a few weeks ago, as we will shortly learn. Uh, last is the man who, who I think has affected most of us, if not intellectually, perhaps even emotionally. This is the guy who is in charge of the Spirit and Opportunity rovers on Mars today. Steve Squires. <laughs> Steve, those, the, ro the rovers are still going, and... Like, what batteries are they using? Because we want some of those batteries here down on Earth. Well, today is day 2,203 of our 90-day mission to Mars. Of your 90-day mission to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't get out much. So it's nice to be here tonight. All right. Thank you. Ooh, there we go. Let me set some context here. There was a plan to reinvigorate NASA under the Bush administration. I served on one of those commissions with both Lester Lyles and Paul Spudis. Recommendations were made. There was not as much political will behind it as our intentions were in that report. The administration changes. We now have a new president. There was a commission set up to study what should be the plan for the manned space program in America. It was chaired by Norm Augustine, known as the Augustine Panel, the Augustine Commission. Lester Lyle served on that commission. We'll get back to him in just a moment on what went on behind those closed doors. And just recently, weeks ago, the president put forth a budget for NASA that establishes a new sort of goal of privatizing access to low Earth orbit. It removes our plans to return to the moon describes the research on launch vehicles and hardware and technologies that might one day, unspecified, take us to Mars. All that happened after we set up the title for this Asimov debate. 
So what was originally just going to be us just putting up some opinions now has huge national implications regarding uh, points of view as they fit or do not fit national directives. So let me just start with you, Steve. You, you're a scientist, professor of astronomy at Cornell, planetary science at Cornell, one Cornell person I heard there, <laughs> yes. And so I, would nor I wouldn't normally think of you as someone who would have strong opinions about sending humans into space. It's a much more costly enterprise. So um, lead us off here with some introductory well, remarks. I mean, as you said, I'm, I, I suppose the reason I'm here is because I work on, my day job is working on the Mars Exploration Rover Project. So I presume you invited me because you think of me as being a Mars guy and a robot guy. Um, I actually look at it a little more broadly than that. Um, my other job these days is running what's called the Decadal Survey. It's something National Research, National Research Council does once every 10 years to plan the next decade of planetary exploration. And as I have been involved in that, I've come to be very, very impressed by the, the importance and the quality of science that you can do at places like the moon and asteroids besides Mars. So I, I, I take a pretty broad view of that. As far as robots versus humans is concerned, despite the fact that I am a robot guy, um, you can't send humans out to explore the solar system soon enough for me. Uh, I mean, as an example, what our magnificent steady-there-out robots have accomplished in six years on Mars, I mean, Paul's a geologist, Paul and I could have done it in about a week, okay? So robots fall far short of what humans are capable of. Except that you want to come home when they're done. That's the, <laughs> yeah, that would be left good. out that and little that, detail. And, that, and, and that's a crit critical point because that's part of what causes the costs of it to, to be so great. But I firmly believe that the best exploration and the most inspiring exploration is ultimately going to be done by humans. Paul, what can you tell us about yourself as it relates to this panel? Well, uh, like Steve has said, I'm a geologist, and I also dabble in robotics myself. I actually, I was on the Clementine science team. That was a mission to the moon back in the 1990s. And currently, we have two imaging radars orbiting the moon. One was on the Indian Chandrayaan-1 mission, which completed its uh, mapping back last year. And we also have a version of the radar on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. It is mapping the poles of the moon, looking for telltale evidence of ice in the polar shadows. What we have found is, in fact, that this ice does exist. It's widely distributed. It's not a continuous ice cap like you see on Earth or like you see on Mars, but it is present. And that kind of leads me to where I'm coming from this evening. I, my feeling is that the moon is a logical destination because it has the material and energy resources we need to begin to create spacefaring capability with what we find in space. Now, I'm a scientist, I'm a geologist, and like Steve, I certainly want to see people explore the planets. But I also want us to be able to stay there on a sustained basis, on a sustainable basis. To do that, we're going to have to learn to take what we find in space and convert it into what we need. And the moon is the ideal place to learn how to do that. It has those materials, it has those ener that energy, and we can convert them into forms that are useful to us. So my feeling is the moon is a key stepping stone into the rest of the solar system. So resources that we wouldn't bring back here to Earth necessarily, but use for other activities to sustain our spacefaring presence. That's right. It's okay. not material that's, that's valuable to import to the Earth, but it's valuable by virtue of the fact that it's already in space. It's already in Earth orbit. Bob. Well, okay, I'm an <laughs> astronaut. Okay, well, you need to ask a question. But well, just tell me, are you originally an astronomer or sort of a rock jock person? Uh, 
no, I am an astronautical engineer. Engineer. And, okay. uh, you know, I used to do design of preliminary, uh, preliminary design for interplanetary missions at Martin Marietta, which is now Lockheed Martin. Now I have my own company, Pioneer Astronautics. And anyway, in working on the problem of human Mars missions, it became clear that if you weren't trying to do it the hard way, if you weren't trying to do, do it using an assortment of technologies and infrastructural activities that were being sold at various NASA centers because they had an interest in them, humans to Mars was not that hard. And that, from a technical point of view, we're much closer today to sending humans to Mars than we were to sending men to the moon in 1961. There's no doubt about it. And so, if we cannot set our goals on Mars, okay, then we have become much less as a people than the people than we used to be. And so Mars is where the challenge is, it's where the greatest science is, and it's also where the future is, because while there are some resources on the moon, as Paul has said, there's vastly more on Mars. You know, there, there are continent-sized regions on Mars that are 60% water by weight in the soil. There's a complex geological history that's created mineral ore. There, there, there's uh, uh, carbon, which is necessary for life and for fuels and for plastics. There's nitrogen. That, you know, there's a 24-hour day that plants need if they want to grow. Uh, you know, to the coming age of exploration, Mars compares to the moon like North America compared to Greenland in our previous age of exploration. Greenland was closer to Europe, Europeans reached it first, but North America was a place we could settle. So why not set our eyes on the prize and reach for what we can? So this will not be the first time you diss the moon this evening, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> Ken, Ken, you're, you're head of the NAC, National Advisory Council. And I, I, moon or Mars or any one destination doesn't ooze out of you. So do you have a, a sort of a different kind of balanced view on this? I, uh, I think I do. And uh, uh, unlike my colleagues, I apparently didn't get the memo about the, uh, the opening remarks. And I actually drafted some. Uh, and, and, and so uh, I'll inflict uh, 60 seconds of them on you. Uh, but I promise it won't be painful. Um, on most days, when we, uh, we look at the news cycle, the daily 24-hour news cycle, there's very little among the thousands of items that we see in that news cycle that will be regarded as important and noteworthy in 500 years. However, our accomplishments in space will be regarded as having mattered and having been important when looked upon with admiration centuries hence. They will marvel at the courage the curiosity and audacity of a people who put the first human footprint on a planet other than their own, who sent their robotic ambassadors deep into the solar system, not to conquer or for financial gain, but just to know. They will wonder if they could measure up to such people. I look back at the Apollo era and wonder the same thing and hope that our generation will also be included as worthy of their admiration. We will not have to wait 500 years to find out. We are at a critical juncture now with respect to the future of the United States human spaceflight program. Our human spaceflight program should have clear and specific goals derived from national objectives and specific timelines for accomplishments of those goals. Certainly, these goals will include destinations beyond low Earth orbit. But goals and destinations are not the same thing. As Les Brown once said, Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Barring a very large budget increase, we need a human spaceflight program that is thoughtfully incremental in nature, 
one in which each step builds upon the capabilities developed in the previous steps as we fly progressively more challenging missions. Such an approach could make continuous progress, frequently demonstrate new capabilities, engage the public, and offer new administrations an opportunity to make steering inputs while taking ownership of the long-term national goals. In my view, the single most important factor in the success of NASA's human spaceflight program will be its stability of purpose, strategy, requirements, and funding. If that stability is not forthcoming, NASA's efforts to implement the nation's civil space policy will accomplish less and cost more. Bumming us out, man. <laughs> I try to get you to say something happy before the end of the debate. <laughs> the, the depressing truth about a mismatch between our funding and our dreams. We'll get back to that theme. Les, you're a different kind of character here. We've got academics and technologists, and you're a military guy, career, True. career retired. True. So I want to hear what you have to say about all this. Well, Neil, thank you very much. It's an honor being here. Um, as you said, I'm a retired Air Force, a four-star general. Uh, but in most of my 35 and a half years in the United States Air Force, I've been involved in space programs, uh, starting as a young rocket scientist, uh, as a lieutenant, uh, having the opportunity to manage the development of uh, most of the current generation of expendable launch vehicles, uh, running the Air Force's space development organization out at uh, Los Angeles. And uh, since I retired, and oh, one other thing I forgot, uh, running the Star Wars program, as President Reagan called it. That was not purely stars, if you will, in, in the uh, literal sense, but missile defense programs, but had a lot of space aspects to it. Uh, since retiring, I've had the honor and the privilege of serving on several commissions or major studies dealing with space, uh, the honor of serving on President Bush's Space Commission with Neil and with Paul. Uh, last year, I had the opportunity to chair a special study for the National Academy of Science and National Academy of Engineering on the rationale and goals for the United States Civil Space Program, and then this past summer, being a member of the Augustine Committee, looking at the Human Spaceflight Program. So. Most of my career has been involved in a lot of space and space development. Uh, I'm a space geek from that standpoint, uh, an engineer, not a pure scientist, but my love and appreciation for space, I think, uh, uh, matches anybody here in this particular room. We'll come back to that, but thanks for that introduction. Uh, so now you heard opening remarks. Now we're in a bar, and you're just eavesdropping, okay? <laughs> Let's get a little comfortable here. <laughs> there we go. <clears throat> Uh, in the back room, Paul Spuda says, look, if we're going to pretend we're at a bar, at least can we pretend to have a drink? <laughs> <laughs> and the first round's on you. <laughs> first round's on I you. don't think he actually said pretend, but... <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got to go to Bob Zubrin first here. Bob, if I understood your opening remarks, you're saying that we are technologically more prepared to get to the moon than a generation ago was prepared to get sorry, to Mars, <laughs> than a generation ago was prepared to get to the moon, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, correct me if I've mischaracterized it, but we are administratively incapable of accomplishing it because the system is not streamlined to accomplish that goal the way NASA was streamlined to accomplish going to the moon back in the 60s. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, not exactly. Okay. Um, <laughs> Is it approximately? <laughs> All right. It's a question of leadership. Um, you know, the Union was capable of defeating the Confederacy, but only after it got rid of McClellan and put in Grant. Okay? 
And what we've got... I'll take your word for that, because okay. Uh, okay, what you, you, you have to do is say you're going to do it. Now, you know, people talk about budget. NASA's budget today in inflation-adjusted dollars is the same as its average budget was during the Apollo period from 1961 to 1973. Okay, it's a bigger fraction of the federal budget because the federal budget then was smaller because the United States was poorer. That was hardly an advantage to the U.S. of the 60s. What they had, they had one quarter of the GMP of, that we had. They didn't even have push-button telephones, but they had guts. Okay, gutsy leadership. That's what we need. Okay, and to say, as Norm Augustine said, you know, it's like St. Augustine said, Lord, make me chaste, but not now. <laughs> Norm Augustine said... Lord, let us have a bold space program, but not now. Okay, we've got to do better than that. And uh, I think this has created a crisis for the space program because while before, as long as the shuttle was flying, you could have a space program that wasn't really going anywhere and engaged in a random walk, but things would go on. Now the shuttle program is ending. And since the Obama administration canceled the moon program that the Bush people have put in place, and they did not actually commit to Mars, they just said, we'd kind of like that to happen sometime, okay, they have basically endangered the American human spaceflight program. So the question now is not, should we go to the moon or Mars, but are we going to go anywhere? I knew I should have given him decaf before, the, before we started here. <laughs> Paul, uh, surely you could agree with much of what, what, what Bob said because he's just talking about losing the capability to go anywhere other than just drive around the block, yeah, boldly going where hundreds have gone before. So, so, so I assume you are equally as disappointed with the White House proposal to cancel the return to the moon. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I, I think the biggest problem that I see is that, that people tend to think of, of the, the issue in, in the old terms of Apollo, and, and that is that fundamentally you've got to create, as, as Ken said, you want to create an incremental program, but the incremental program has to be cumulative. So each step builds on each other's, each, each step that went before it. Um, I actually think that $20 billion... By the way, that's what happened in the 60s. Each Gemini mission was an incremental advance on the previous one. Not, not quite. The Apollo was different in the following sense. There was a, an overriding political imperative that effectively made resources available that were needed. Now, in contrast, one thing I'll take issue with what Bob said... Resources are not necessarily the same thing as money. The one thing that we had in the 60s that we don't have anymore is the aerospace technical industrial infrastructure that was largely needed to run the Cold War. And, and, and that was the legacy of World War II. And that technical infrastructure allowed us to do Apollo. So it created a quantum leap from near zero capability to a fairly significant capability. Uh, we don't have that anymore. So it's not just... I mean, we could spend twice as much money now... On, on going to the moon or going to Mars and still not make very much progress. There's, there's a sea change in the way we view technical things. And I think we need to get into the mindset of looking at, at crafting a program that builds on itself and that has logical goals associated with logical activities at logical places. All right, now what you describe as logical activities and logical goals, Ken, as head of the NAC, oh, by the way, let me preface this by saying several members of this panel serve as formal members of active committees and commissions 
and programs where their presence on this panel, they are representing themselves as private citizens. They're not speaking in their capacity as members of those panels, just to clarify that. Uh, so, Ken, you, um, you, you, you preside over the advisory council where your duty is to make the best of whatever you're handed of the NASA budget. So that's admirable and, and, and we respect that. Uh, now, as citizen, Ken, did, what, what, what was your feeling when you saw that the moon was yanked out from the plan? Um, the uh, response that I had was uh, not a response to seeing the moon not in the plan, but it was a response feeling that we need a destination and a timeline, as I said in my opening remarks. So and the current budget doesn't have a timeline. If I'm, a ti it doesn't have a timeline. It just or, says when, whenever it happens, it might happen. Or specific goals and destinations. So I think that destinations should come after you set goals. You should have national goals, and then destinations are derived from the goals, and you develop a timeline, and then you develop an incremental program along the time, the kind we just heard about to achieve those goals. Les, the military doesn't always have timelines. When the military is funded, it's create a capability so that we can tap and draw upon it when we need to, when the time demands it. So what's, so what's so wrong about having a plan to go to Mars but not a date associated with it? Well, your statement's not completely accurate. Usually for any major military program, I'll speak for the Air Force, because I'm most familiar with that, uh, we have specific timelines and requirements we're trying to meet, trying to get a capability by a certain time period to meet either a given threat that we think might exist or will be uh, manifest at a particular time, or to do a particular campaign. So timelines and destinations are almost part and, and heart and soul of the requirements for developing a large uh, system or system of systems. And that helps you set the price for it, because then you have a timeline with monies per month. Yes, yes. To does. accomplish this. And to lay out a, a logical program. Somebody used that the statement earlier. And lay out the development steps and schedules for things that you need to accomplish to achieve those particular objectives. So that, that is important. Could you comment on the match or mismatch between your findings on the Augustine Commission and the White House budget that unfolded after that? Because I'm curious, wasn't that commission presidentially established? It was. So you would think that the president's budget for our future in space should, should be influenced by that report. So could you comment on to the extent that it was or was not? Yeah, for the most part, uh, you heard statements made when the budget came out that they followed the guidelines of the Augustine Committee, and that's true to one, uh, with one major exception. Uh, we laid out uh, some of the uh, objectives and things that are in the budget. We talked about the need for more robust commercial activity and involvement with universities and research centers. We talked about a more robust science and technology program for space. That was met, if you will. We talked about uh, extending the shuttle program, extending the International Space Station. But the one major thing that was different, we talked about adding $3 billion more per year uh, to NASA's budget to allow them to do the things that are currently on the docket for them, at least were at that particular time. Um, so the major steps are there, but the budget, even though there's an increase in the budget for NASA for most of the activities, particularly science and technology, the $3 billion more per year we recommended was not, uh, not part of this particular budget. Bob, isn't it true that today NASA's portfolio is more diverse than it was in the 60s? So how much of what NASA can't do, according to your wishes, is not because they're inefficient, but because they, there's Earth monitoring, they're sustaining a space station with whatever objective. There's, there's a portfolio. Uh, 
No, that's not accurate. The, the NASA program in the 60s was vastly more productive than the one is today um, because it had a central focus. Okay, they developed a coherent set of hardware that allowed us to go to the moon in eight years, but they not only did that, they launched 60 lunar and planetary missions. They developed uh, multi-stage heavy lift launch vehicles, hydrogen oxygen rocket engines, in-space life support, deep space navigation, deep space communication, lunar soft landing techniques, re-entry techniques, <coughs> space rendezvous techniques, space suits, space nuclear reactors, the, basically the entire bag of tricks pretty much that NASA has used ever since was developed then. Okay, they did that on a budget from 1961 to 1973, basically the Apollo period, Okay, that is no greater than what NASA had in its budget between 1998 and today, and in total. And uh, NASA, in, during this period, has developed no new technology to mention. Okay, the only part of NASA's program today that compares in productivity, okay, to the program of the 1960s is the Robotic Planetary Exploration Program. And the reason why is because they also use what is fundamentally the Apollo methodology is you pick a mission, you design a hardware set that can do that in its entirety, that fits together, that gives you a mission capability, and you fly the mission. If JPL in its planetary the program... The Jet Propulsion Labs in Pasadena, right, California, uh, NASA Center. Okay, conducted its activity by doing a random set of technology development activities forcefully put forward by its various adherents here and there, and then tried to design missions in order to provide rationales for those technology developments, they would be as uh, unproductive as the manned spaceflight program has been. Steve, uh, do you agree? Uh, you're your you're poster child for successful robotic planetary missions. Uh, uh, let me, before we whip back in there, I want to ask you, at what point do you say to yourself, I have a tested technology that works, so my next mission is going to get there on these rockets with these airbags to land, and they're tested, and someone says, no, I, I have a new idea about how to land. I have a new idea about how to launch your rocket. At what point do you say, let's test the new idea because it can open a whole new pathway of technology, and at what point do you say, I'm sticking with what works, Buster? Well, that's sort of always been the contrast between the NASA style and the old Soviet and Russian style. The Soviets, the Russians would find something that works, and they would stick with it. And you look at the rockets that they fly today, and they look so much like the stuff that they flew 35, 40 years ago. And in many cases, they're very, very similar in design, right down to the details. On our side, we tinker. We change things. We get something to work, and then we move on. And that's just, it's part of the NASA culture. It's the way things have always been done. It has its, it has its pluses and its minuses. I remember when the end. shuttle first came out, and I heard a newscaster say, this is the most complex, advanced piece of space machinery ever designed. And I'm, they were boasting of this. I said, it, it, the engineer in me came out and said, is that, is that a good thing <laughs> to boast of how complex? <clears throat> you know, the more, the more parts there are, the you add up the probability of any one part breaking, you add it up, and there you go. Yeah. Something breaks. Yeah. So, uh, but is that a good thing or bad thing? I didn't hear you comment. I think it's both. I think it's both. Uh, I mean, if you look at the output of our planetary program, we do things, I mean, each one is something different from what came before, and we, our success rate has been high enough that it's been extraordinarily productive. The Soviets, however, and the Russians are really, really good at, for example, putting stuff into space. And after the shuttle is retired, we're going to be dependent on the Russians. Ken, when is the shuttle retiring? Pardon? 
When is the shuttle retiring? Four more flights. Four more flights. Yeah. We're done. We have no access to orbit. So how do we get to orbit? We've, we've got a space station up there. We buy rides from the Russians. Buy a ride, buy a seat in the Soyuz capsule. Yep. That's been working since the six, late 60s. It has. So there's benefits to both approaches. The, uh, the difference is you wouldn't have station up there if you hadn't had shuttle. That's right. So shuttle has uh, remarkable capabilities that are very dissimilar to uh, the Soyuz. The challenge will be if something significant fails on station uh, that requires uh, a large volume item brought up, we're not going to have a way to do that. Right, because the Soyuz is just to keep people in, in your lunchbox or something, right? That's, That's about it. it. Small lunch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> small lunchbox. Yeah. Uh, Les, our motivations... Wait, wait, I'm not done with you here. So, uh, just so I understand, <clears throat> if the audience does not otherwise know, there has been always some tension between the NASA budget as it gets allocated to science and as it gets allocated to the MAN program. The MAN program is the lion's share, never less than two-thirds, historically a higher fraction of the NASA budget uh, compared with science. Are you that enthusiastic about the MAN program that if push came to shove, and they said, we're going to take, bar, you know, take from Peter to pay Paul. They'll take a billion dollars out of science, put it in the man program. Is this something you would endorse? That's an interesting hypothetical question, but historically, that's not the way it has tended to go. If you look at the historical trends, the NASA space science budget has been 20 to 25 percent of the NASA budget for a very long time. And when the total NASA budget goes up, the space science budget goes up with it. Now, his, you, can, you can come up with hypotheticals all you want, but when I look at the administration's priorities, when I look at the administration's latest budget for NASA, that ratio is maintained. The NASA budget's going up slowly and going up with it at the same pace as the space science So you're budget. cool with that? I'm cool with that. Good. So what, what it means is you can argue for a higher manned budget, and you know science is just going to ride the piggy, piggyback that on its way up. It's they have always, always sort of always gone been together. that way. Yeah. It's very useful to know. Les, I'm going to get back to you. Uh, motivations for going into space. We heard about moon resources from Moon Spudis here. Uh, we heard about <laughs> the fact that Mars is is that much more of an uh, of a target, given the, the the carbonates that are there and other sort of uh, things that might be useful for life to sustain life, perhaps one day. Um, Although no one's talked about the search for life yet as a goal, but maybe we'll get there. So I want to know from you, what are the objectives that the military has in space? And what is space to the military? Is it low Earth orbit? Is it cis-lunar orbit, a new word in my vocabulary in the last three years? That's the zone around the Earth out to the moon's orbit. Or do you care about Mars at all as a military man? Uh, as a military man, space has always been, it's the high ground. It's the ultimate high ground. Uh, it goes back to Sun Tzu and the art of war, if you will, and I can never pronounce that right, so forgive me for anybody who, who out there who knows that particular uh, Chinese philosopher and uh, war general. Uh, it's the ultimate high ground, and achieving the high ground is always something you want to have uh, for any potential conflict, for observing where you live uh, and observing things that are taking place where you live. Uh, for the military person, it's been the, the place we always like to, uh, to be. But uh, I would say the Desert Storm War in 1990-1991 was the first time the military really began to appreciate space when we realized that everything we do, every operation, every communication, satellites uh, for uh, observation, for surveillance and reconnaissance, 
everything revolves around space. And we became a space nation as far as the military is concerned uh, in earnest starting in 1990, 1991. You, so, we cannot live and operate today without space capability. So what you're saying is whatever is our security, whether you want it to be more or less than what it is, whatever it is, it is fundamentally based on space assets. And space capabilities. And yes. space capabilities. Yes. And that space to you, though, is low Earth orbit. It's not the moon, right? It's not necessarily the moon, but that's not to say that we don't appreciate, from a military standpoint, uh, what you can learn, what you may be able to find out by venturing out further, by doing further exploration, okay. and by doing things on the International Space Station also. Now, the military, correct my history here if I'm wrong, military had an early interest in the space shuttle, mm -hmm. helping to design some of its capabilities, only to realize how darn expensive it was, and you guys just pulled out and started launching your, launching your own satellites. You know, it wasn't so much just a cost. Uh, after the Challenger accident, we realized that we had bet everything on the shuttle. We had uh, essentially did away with our... Uh, inex uh, expendable launch vehicle technology and capabilities. And after a Challenger, we realized that uh, we needed to have a way to get satellites, military satellites, communication satellites into space, and we developed a whole family of current generation of expendable launch vehicles. You did that without NASA? Uh, we did own. in concert with NASA, I know, because I managed the development as a young Air Force colonel. So uh, then I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so in concert with that, so you borrowed NASA technologies or, or, or science, uh, uh, engineering? Well, we, we have our own, obviously, mm -hmm. but we work very closely and always do uh, today and in the past, work very closely with NASA uh, and obviously the industrial community in developing all of our space capabilities. It's, it really is one family when it comes to that standpoint. Now, contrary to how many people think of NASA as just uh, we're exploring and discovering space, you're saying the military dimension of that is is not widely either known or talked about? Uh, it's not, and I, I would hesitate to use the word dimension to such an extent that somebody would think NASA's doing military programs. Uh, but when you look at the fact that uh, the technology is the same, the physics are the same, uh, the industrial base is the same, we're using the same capabilities, and we try to leverage uh, discussions, technologies, et cetera, to meet our different requirements. So, now, now, you've never been interested in putting people into space, right? Uh, we were at one point, yes. Uh, and the Air Force uh, had a lot of mission specialists uh, uh, involved as astronauts in the early shuttle programs. But right now, not less so. Uh, I wouldn't say that we've lost that completely. If you were to go out to Colorado Springs, uh, where our space organization uh, is located, you'll find a large bunch of people out there who still believe that having knowledge about space and operating in space it's something the Air Force should never give up. The military should never give up. So while we don't have any military missions in outer space, the way you describe it as man, uh, it's something that's very, very near and dear to us, and we stay closely involved. Uh, Paul, do you think there's enough reason to sort of uh, gain access to space out to the moon without having a military driver that funds it? Yes. The reason why I ask is, as you know, the history of this exercise is right. the military needs to do something. People feel security is high priority. Money flows like rivers, and it hardly ever does that for science. Well, well let me pick up on, on something you said about cislunar space. It, it is the volume between the Earth and the moon, and Les has talked about some of the military applications there. There are a variety of different orbits, and they all have different energy requirements to get to. But it's not only our national security both, both strategic and tactical assets that are in this volume. It's all of our economic assets as well. I mean, how many people here have direct TV at home? Right? How many people look at the weather forecast on a daily basis? 
right? Do you have a, do you have a, a, a direction finder, a GPS system in your car? All of those systems are supported by satellite assets that are in cislunar space. And right now, the template is you design a satellite for a specific purpose, you launch it, you operate it, you discard it, and then you replace it with a brand new one that has to be launched from the bottom of the Earth's gravity well all over again. Now, my point is, is that if by, by, by setting a goal to go to the moon, establishing a permanent, sustainable presence on the moon, and using that human presence, human and robotic presence, to manufacture rocket propellant, for example, you create a transportation system that can routinely access not only the lunar surface, but every point in cislunar space as well. So the, there's, a, there's an economic driver you feel exactly. that's sufficient. But you, that's an economic driver for other stuff that you'd be doing in space. But, but see, traditionally, exploration has been both science, but it's also been about settlement and about wealth creation. I mean, traditionally, I mean, Columbus did not come to the New World to look at, to catalog the plants here, right? There was, a, there was a fundamental wealth driver for that. And traditionally, exploration has always been about finding new sources of wealth and new places to settle. What happened was, at the beginning of the 20th century, science became a rationale for exploration. It sort of started with the heroic era of polar exploration. And it then became a proxy for national soft power politics. But in fact, traditionally, exploration has always included the wealth-creating kinds of things. So I, I consider exploration and, and space, space exploration and space applications to be two sides of the same coin. Here's my concern. If I'm the first one to cross America, fine, but you're a businessman. Are you going to put a quick mart in the middle waiting for me to come if I'm the first person? No, you're not, because I'm the first person. So at what point do you put in the quick mart where you can make money off of this? And at what point do you... Plus, if I'm traveling across America and I get to the middle, I can still breathe the air, sure. right? I mean, I'm, I can eat the plants. You can't do that on a lunar surface. Ah, uh, but you can, and that's the whole point. You, you can, can eat the moon? You can what? extract, what? You, can ex you, can find, you can find and make what you need. You can find and make the consumables you need to support human life on the moon. Right, so my, my point is, you know, you're, if you're going to bring up the frontier analogy, it, look at what happened. I mean, first you had the mountain men that went out and explored. They were by themselves. They were isolated. Then that was followed up by what? By the army and their topographical surveys, which were not only uh, mapping the West, but they were also making catalogs of what the geology was, what kind of plants there were. That was followed by the uh, traders and the, set and the entrepreneurs who came to mine, who came to sell stuff, and then finally the settlers. It's the same way with space. If you build an incremental system that gradually extends human reach, you can have the same kind of movement. Uh, Bob, the resources you talked about, you can't stand in denial of that. Why would you rather go to Mars much farther, much farther away than the moon? Oh, well, I, I certainly can stand in denial of it. I mean, there's much more carbon on Mars, which is fundamental to life. It's got a carbon dioxide atmosphere. There's nitrogen on Mars, which is necessary for life. There's no nitrogen on the moon. Not okay, true. The, the, okay, there's oceans of there water. There's everything. But I want to talk about the real economic... Well, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. I want to talk about the real economic benefit of this program. Because, of Mars? Yes, of Mars. Okay, because... You want to know where the real economic benefit of this program is and what the real economic benefit of the Apollo program was? Okay? It was the development of intellectual capital. 
not, there was a number of technological inventions that NASA likes to cite associated with the Apollo program, and some of that is even true. But it's, no, I mean, but most of it isn't. But, the, but what is true, okay, um, what is true is that as a direct result of the excitement among youth caused by the Apollo program, the number of science graduates in this country doubled at every level, high school, college, PhD. Okay, and it was the 12-year-old little boy scientists of the 1960s who became the technical entrepreneurs of the, the 1990s who created Silicon Valley and all sorts of other things. And a Humans to Mars program today, okay, would be an invitation to adventure to every young person in this country, learn your science and you could become a pioneer of new worlds. And out of that challenge, we would get millions of not only little boy scientists, but because the sciences are open to women and minorities today in a way that was simply not the case in the 1960s, little girl scientists and, 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 as well. And you know, if you think about that, it's going to be 50 million kids in our schools over the next 10 years. And if 1 million of them more became scientists or engineers or doctors or medical researchers or technological entrepreneurs or inventors or, or what have you, instead of retail clerks, okay, the benefits to them in terms of direct national income, but also to our society in terms of all the innovations and industries that they create would be phenomenal. And look, youth loves adventure. That is the essence of it. The desire to do things that have never been done before, to go where no one has gone before, to build where has nothing been done before. To boldly go. Okay, that is it. And that is where, why Mars, precisely because it is where the challenge is, has unprecedented economic benefits compared to any other destination. All right, so... Uh, so why not go both places? Just take NASA's budget from the half a penny on a dollar that it currently is of your tax base to two cents on a dollar, let's say. So Ken, if we quadrupled NASA's budget, by the way, I did a little straw poll asking people how much do they think NASA's budget is on your tax dollar. Typically they say maybe a nickel or three cents or, <laughs> you know, and I say, no, it's one half of one penny. So I wanted to start a movement in the government where every agency gets the budget that people think they're getting, all right? <laughs> and so if that's the case, NASA's budget will go up by a factor of four. And if that, which is evidence of how visible NASA's spending is, that's a, that's a compliment to NASA, not an insult to it. So, so if NASA's budget were large enough, do you think it's possible to have a dual program, one that invokes the moon for uh, economic reasons, not fooling ourselves into thinking that we're gonna pitch tent there, Maybe only Paul would pitch tent there, but the rest of us would then and, and, and pick up and sustain a Mars program. Is any pro- do you see, foresee any problem with that? Well, that actually was the plan. The, the vision for space exploration involved a, a return to the moon as a stepping stone of sorts uh, for a Mars mission. And, and certainly with a budget anywhere near the number that you're describing, uh, that should be, be doable. That'd be a piece of cake. Yeah. Les, your hand was up for a minute ago. What? Yeah, I want to just uh, uh, agree with Bob, but sort of counter one particular point that he made. Uh, I agree about the, the point of all the inspiration for youth and interest in science and technology, engineering and math, uh, et cetera. Uh, and I have to think back to 2004 when the President, came, President Bush came out with the exploration uh, mission and policy uh, for the United States Space Program. You and I were there. Paul was there uh, on the commission. 
As I recall, even though the policy talked about going to the moon as a stepping stone to Mars, the real, real objective of the program was to stimulate, inspire innovation and discovery. It was exploration. The destination almost really didn't matter. As long as we were continuing to explore, we were going out in space, we were getting people interested in science and engineering and math again and technology, that was the real objective of the program. And so when I hear people say that the present uh, budget killed going back to the moon, I really cringe because that was not the real objective. The objective was to get the United States back involved in exploration, back involved in space on a rigorous basis, and to get innovation and technology back in our, our uh, mindset for the things we're doing in space. That's not going to happen if Mars is just somewhere, somewhere on the timeline. It, it, perhaps Mars is not the right place. I well, don't know. What, Mars and the moon are not the only places one might consider going to. No. Both, each of those have landing issues because they're each in their own gravitational well. Yep. So we take for granted that the shuttle gets hot on its way back in with shuttle tiles. That's important because it eats up the kinetic energy it had in orbit. Can't do that on the moon. You've got to bring fuel to slow down, otherwise you just simply crash into the moon. With asteroids, tell me about yeah, asteroids. I don't think we've talked enough about asteroids. Um, asteroids, first of all, have very low gravity, so you don't have to go down into a gravity well and then come back out again because they're, they're very near zero gravity. Uh, there are asteroids that are incredibly rich in carbon. There are asteroids that are incredibly rich in metallic materials, iron, nickel, and all sorts of trace elements. So everything Moon, Moon Spudis is talking about on the Moon, you can get on an asteroid. You can get it better on the asteroid. On, on you asteroids, can get it better. Yeah. So, so asteroids, <laughs> asteroids are an incredibly rich source of raw materials. Now, they're not a good place to live. I don't think Moon's a very good place. In fact, I don't think Mars is a good place to live either. I, 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 I've spent a lot of time looking at Mars recently, and I, I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> um, but just to clarify, Bob, isn't... The South Pole in the middle of Antarctica, balmier than Mars? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, good. Okay, okay fine. The, uh, continue. <laughs> but, Just to clarify. But, but okay. the reason why there are no societies of people d devoted to uh, settling Antarctica okay, is because people understand that human expansion to another world would represent a quantum development in human history, a, a, a major expansion of the human process. I don't think that's why people and are not building condos on the South Pole. No, no, no. I, I don't the, think the, they're the, thinking this. No, no, the, the issue is this. The reason why it's worth doing something as hard as exploring and ultimately settling Mars is because what it would do in terms of opening up the human prospect and creating a future with an open frontier rather than a future of a world of limited resources which in which Archer choice has become ever smaller and closer and, 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 and freedom is ever more limited. This is what's ultimately at stake in the question of, uh, of human expansion into space or not, whereas Antarctica does not effectively change the picture. One Plus, way. Antarctica is South Pole or there's the Bahamas, you know, I pick the Bahamas, you know, it's easy. You know. So, pick up with your asteroids. Anyway, I think asteroids are a great source of natural resources out in space. And as I say, there's not a, they're not a place to live. They're not a place to set up manufacturing facilities. Would you but set up mining mine, colonies there? Mines, mining. yeah. Yeah, mining the asteroids. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot more to, more to mine on asteroids than there is. Because we're, we're running out on here on Earth. We're running out. Can I make a couple of comments yeah, about the asteroids? The, there, there, there are some drawbacks to asteroids, too, especially as, a, as an initial destination for people. For one thing, there are, they are typically much longer transit times than a flight to the moon. Now, 
if that's a skill we're going to have to master eventually to go to the planet. So that's fine. You need to do Just that. Just to quantify, the moon is about three days right. in the ballistic and, and, trajectory. And the, 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 the shortest NEA mission I've seen them study over... NEA, the near-Earth asteroid. Near-Earth asteroid mission uh, that I've seen them study is, is about seven months round trip. And that's, that's not all that difficult. But asteroids themselves might have some hazards. A lot of them rotate very fast. So you can only approach them near the pole. They might have co-orbiting clouds of debris that might cause a hazard to the manned spacecraft. It's not clear to me, and especially when I read through the Augustine report about flexible path and the value of asteroids, I didn't know what the astronauts were going to do there. I mean, they were going to approach the asteroid, they're going to hang around for a few days, they're going to go out and float, but there was no description of what kind of scientific study or what benefit we'll get from it. Now, Steve is right. They're, they are a rich source of material, and, and in fact, ultimately, I think they have a place to play in the industrialization of space. The problem is, is that we don't know in detail how they're put together. We don't know what they're made of. We only have a vague notion of that. Which is why we should go explore them. No, but, but the same is true for the moon as well. We have, a, we have a good database there. We also have gravity, which is a very useful property to have when you're doing materials processing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't have gravity with granular materials, typically you have a big problem. So if you go to Wait, the why asteroids, is that a I don't if you go to the, well, because the asteroids are a low-gravity environment, so when you're creating a lot of dust, if you have a lot of granular material to process, you're going to have to create gravity to make things go in the right direction when you start separating pieces. That would be a pieces. trick, creating gravity, yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah, but I mean, that's a complication of the processing <laughs> stream. So I'm just saying is I'm all in favor of learning how to use what but we find. Just to clarify, you're on, a, you're on an asteroid and we're trying to mine it. Yeah. What you're saying is it just... A lot of dust gets kicked up. Is that what you're saying? Fine material, that's and right. And then it just floats around and it comes... It, it clings to stuff. It doesn't go where you want it to go. When you start processing it to extract stuff, things don't move in the right direction. So what about this? I think it's kind of hypothetical. We don't know. Okay, no one has tried mining asteroids, and I have a great deal of confidence in the ingenuity of our engineers. I believe everything that you've just discussed is a tractable problem. What it finally comes down to is, is the right stuff there? And there's good stuff on asteroids. No, there's good stuff on the moon, too. Less of it. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, you had... You the, uh, I think you alluded to it, but one of the great advantages of the asteroid, of course, there are disadvantages to every location and advantages, is the lack of need for a, a lander and, and the gravity well issue. And uh, I, I think an asteroid mission, uh, people are thinking about it partly for economic reasons and partly for the need to be able to do something... If, if you talk about inspiring young people, if you tell them uh, we're going to do this great event in 2030, that's less inspirational than if we're going to do it soon. And so one of the great successes of Apollo is it happened quickly. It's like pulling a tooth. There are some things that are actually easier to do quickly, and I think this is one of them. Uh, and uh, if, when you push it far, far out, it, it just never happens. You're worried that we'll lose political will or drive or the I, like. I am, and, and mm -hmm. what I'm interested in is developing an incremental plan that uh, allows the United States to have access to wherever it wants to go. Less. Yes. <laughs> War is the biggest driver of the expenditure of resources the human species have ever, has ever seen or known. I thought it was bank bailouts. Bank bailouts. Okay. <laughs> okay. Second to bank bailouts, the, the biggest repository of funds ever. Does does do are there people who view China as a space threat now that they are spacefaring with humans? 
if they set up colonies on the moon, is that going to... Is that going to be a Sputnik moment for America? If China says, we're going to put colonies on Mars, is that, will that change our Mars date because we will no longer have the high ground? That's a big debate going on from a national security standpoint as to how to view uh, international cooperation, particularly with a, a country like China. I think for the most part, everybody's hoping that uh, there's going to be cooperation, uh, international cooperation in space across the board. Uh, we talked about it in the Augustine Committee report. Uh, we talked about it in the NRC study that I chaired, the need uh, and benefits of having international cooperation, not putting all things uh, under our belt for resources, but working cooperatively with other nations, including potentially China, and to try to make sure that it does not become an adversarial sort of uh, environment where we have to fight against each other. And I don't mean that literally. Even from a budget standpoint, I think that's very, very unhealthy. We could have held hands with the Russians. We didn't. In fact, we were more motivated knowing that they were the enemy and, or the adversary, to be a little more polite about it. We're certainly working with them now, obviously. And I now, but back in the 60s. So is it not true whether or not we want to agree with the statement that when you have an adversary, you are more uh, stimulated to innovation and creativity? Uh, I, don't, I won't use the word adversary. I think that's a negative term. I think right now we're viewing... Uh, uh, China, particularly uh, as an, a nation that we want to find ways we can cooperate with uh, when it comes to space activities. I, the NASA administrator, I think, recently uh, either has or will be going to have some discussions with uh, his Chinese counterparts. I think everybody's leaning forward to try to make sure this is done in a cooperative vein and don't even get to the point where we're thinking of it uh, in the manner that you just described. And, of course, the International Space Station is one of the greatest examples of international cooperation there ever was. Exactly. Okay. So, so um, we're going to, in a moment or two, go to questions from the audience. Uh, I just want to sort of get some sort of reflective comments on each of you. So, Steve, if you, if you were to pick, pick a destination for humans and it was the next place to go, if you were sort of pope of the NASA budget, where would you send people? I think the next place you have to go is actually the moon because it's a place to test out, it's a place to try out the things that you need to go on to, the, excuse me, the more interesting places. <laughs> um, I, I firmly believe that. We have not ventured beyond low Earth orbit in well over 30 years. Since and, 1972. And if we are going to do something as complex as mining asteroids or sending humans to the moon, we need some place to go and flex our deep space muscles again. And the moon is the obvious place. Uh, sorry, if we're going to go on to a place like Mars, we need a, a place to uh, flex our deep space muscles again. And, and, and the moon is the obvious place. But to me, the correct the driving, the dominant long-term destination, I think, must be Mars. So the president's budget is a mistake. He's got limited monies. I think the, the thing about the president's budget is, it, is it, it does two profound things, one of which we haven't even touched on. Okay, one thing that it does is that it removes a destination from the, from the discussion. We've talked about that a lot. But the other thing that it does that is truly fundamental, in fact, it may be more fundamental than the thing that we just talked about, is that it outsources to private industry, the hopefully routine business of putting humans and cargo into low Earth orbit. I don't have a problem with that. That is a major experiment. Yeah, but I don't have a problem with that. That's not a space frontier anymore. We've been there, done that. Keep NASA on the frontier. Yeah, the question is, will it work? Will it work? Moon Spudis, will it work? Well, it might. And, and NASA was moving in that direction anyway. 
But, but my problem with the, the current direction of NASA is, is, and I think Bob and I probably agree with this, is that the fundamental, it's a fundamental mistake to give NASA $20 billion a year and not give them a direction or a destination. Because what you're going to get are $20 billion worth of view graph slides. I mean, they're, they're very good at doing studies, and they're very good at, 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 at debating things, and they're very good at, at pondering alternatives. But they're not so good at, at wisely spending what's called technology investment and then producing flight hardware with it. You just won't get it. So, so my feeling is, is that wherever you go, if you pick the moon, if you pick an asteroid, if you pick Mars, if you pick Venus, you've got to pick something. Because if you're not working towards something, you're going to end up with nothing. And Venus is 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I didn't say land on it. You can orbit it. You go there and then vaporize. Yeah. You know, yes. But Bob. Yeah, uh, I actually agree with Paul. This is a fundamental point. In its history, NASA's human spaceflight uh, program has had two modes of operation, one that existed only during the Apollo period and the other that has existed since. And in the Apollo period, the, the, the method was you choose a destination, which in that case was the moon, you come up with a plan to achieve it, you design a hardware set to realize that plan, and you do technology development to make that hardware possible, and then you build it all and you fly the mission. Their other mode, okay, which is precisely what is being advocated by the uh, administration now, and uh, somewhat by the Augustine Commission, okay, was, they call it technology-driven mode but it's really a constituency-driven mode where different factions are pushing different technologies. And we see this in what the administration just came out with. One guy wants to do propellant depots, which make no sense at all to support either a lunar base or a barn space, and I can explain why in the question period. Another has ideas for a fantastical nuclear electric propulsion system that will require 200,000 kilowatts of electricity, just 20,000 times bigger than anything ever built and flown in space. Okay, the, the, and a, a, another, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. The, you know what it's like? It's like, imagine two couples that each want to build their dream house. Couple number one comes up with a vision for the house, they hire an architect to design it, and then they procure the parts to build it, and they build it. That's the Apollo mode. The other shuttle era mode, which is now being advocated by the Obama administration, is couple number two, which cruises garage sales every weekend and acquires house parts that appeal to them. You know, some aluminum siding, some Doric columns, a fountain with a statue of Napoleon in the middle. Okay, and they gather the stuff in the backyard. A flamingo. And then, and, and then when their in-laws come to visit and they say, why do you have all this junk in your backyard, uh, they say, uh, well, let you know uh, we're going to build a house. And they say, well, I'd like to see the plan for this house. This is like a pretty crazy house. So they hire an architect and they say, look, we want you to design a plan for a house. And it has to include all of these parts. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and, and so the house, is, the house is never built, but they try to avoid embarrassment. So what we're presented with right now, with the abandonment of the moon plan, which I thought was the wrong plan, but at least it was a plan. <laughs> what, what, what we have now is not even a plan, and it's not even wrong. And the, 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 the danger is, if this approach is adopted, that 10 years from now, after spending another $100 billion on human spaceflight and another decade getting older, we will be no closer to sending humans to either the moon or Mars or the asteroids than we are today. 
stop. I get out of breath just listening to you. <laughs> Ken, Ken, uh, where, uh, as a citizen, where, where, would you, where are your ambitions? I, I think I'm in strong agreement with uh, Steve uh, Squire's comments. Um, in, uh, in, you know, there's a lot of discussion uh, that's actually, I think, hurtful uh, to the possibilities of human spaceflight beyond LEO. Uh, about Low Earth orbit LEO, we uh, call it uh, affectionately about, LEO. About where we go next, which are, are driven uh, lots, lots of uh, heat and lots of passion, but uh, they tend to disparage the other places. And the fact of the matter is, as, as he just said, uh, the issue is whether we get to go to any of these places. And most of the hardware set that will take us to one will take us to the other just fine. Uh, you know, the Constellation uh, hardware set was probably... 70% of what you need it to do a, a Mars mission. So the, I think I'm in strong agreement with Steve. I think the next uh, stop, uh, if you're going to land somewhere, should be the moon uh, on the way to places more interesting like Phobos and then Mars. Phobos, one of the moons of Mars. One of the moons of Mars. And then down to Mars. Les, uh, can you give me three answers? One as citizen Wes, <laughs> one as military man Wes, and then one as... West or less? Less. <laughs> but you could do it as West. West. Less. <laughs> Thank you. Less. Now I'm... Less. Could you give me three answers? One as sort of citizen less, another one as military less, and then another one as sort of advisor to presidents, okay. where, which has the sensibility of finite budgets. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, those three are, are really linked, and maybe it's because of my background and my personality. Uh, I'm a glass-half-full type of guy. I've been that way throughout my Air Force career. Uh, I just vehemently disagree with what uh, uh, Bob said, and then Paul, to some extent, I have a lot more confidence in those men and women uh, at NASA uh, and the NASA leadership and their creativity and the ability to do the right thing. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a waste of money or that we're not going to be able to get anywhere within a short period of time. Uh, I saw an interesting chart the other day. Uh, Ken also saw it. It's a chart that shows a matrix of the kinds of technologies that different studies on space have recommended over the last uh, almost 20 years. Uh, our study that we were on, the uh, Aldous Commission, uh, the President Bush's Commission, the study I was on with the Augustine Committee, uh, the study that I was part of for national security space, which I haven't talked about, uh, and the study that I did for the National Research Council, and other studies related to that. All of them talked about technologies you would need to develop in the United States or with your space program to be able to get back to the moon, to get to Mars, et cetera. If you look at all of those technologies, you look at the budget that's in the president's budget and the technologies that are going to be, going to be funded, they match one for one. We can do a lot with this particular budget. Uh, yes, I'm a little bit concerned that we don't have a specific destination or a specific time frame. I know NASA leadership is working on defining a plan for how you pull that together and define a destination as part of the development activity, but I don't think at all, and I want to make sure I get this out because of all those people who cheered Bob, that it's not going to be the sort of willy-nilly approach that was described by my colleague here in the panel. Those great men and women of NASA who've done so many things since Apollo, uh, before Apollo and since Apollo, are going to do the right thing to make sure we are great, they are being great stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. And we are going to advance. Okay. Thank you. Um, a note was just passed to me that we have a caller of some distinction. 
that may be on the line right now. Let me check. Buzz Aldrin, are you there? I am here. Buzz Aldrin, Apollo 11 astronaut. Buzz, have you been eavesdropping on us for this past hour? I've been listening uh, since before you started talking. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Buzz, um, you obviously have a unique perspective here. Uh, we're actually looking at a, a, an image of Neil Armstrong in Apollo 11 capsule. Uh, it was supposed to be an image of you. Uh, we <laughs> messed that one up. But we know who you are. B Buzz, could you tell us what you think of the Augustine Commission as well as what you think of the Obama proposal going forward? Uh, first off, I think I'd like to commend what, uh, everything that I've heard from the different uh, participants in this uh, whispering debate or barroom debate or conversation. Um, I, I think each person uh, is coming from a position of where they've been evolving their best thoughts and, and each person, I think, is very well motivated uh, in uh, expressing their ideas. Uh, I would say that the overall purpose of our human space flight program is to guarantee U.S. global leadership. Now, how we do that with what we have done already I think is what is uh, before us. Uh, and, and I've chosen to look at the vision for space exploration as, uh, uh, as how it was implemented. In the first place, uh, uh, it was for exploration, not for the other uses of space. And that's why when I came up with a plan that I believe is for U.S. global space leadership, it's a vision, but it's a unified space vision. It's not united, it's unified, and as I see it, it unifies five fields. Exploration is one, two places you haven't been. Development is to places you have been. Commercial is developing the commercial uh, return for what you have developed. And scientific is to make use of the knowledge of what you have explored and then developed and, and then commercialized. All of this must be done within the Constitution, which says that the government provides for the common defense. So let me repeat. Unified means exploration, development, commercial, science, and security. Now, we have exhibited uh, leadership in a number of those uh, fields previously. We've done a very good job in responding to the challenge of Sputnik by deciding to challenge our people uh, in a way that was very clear to our people that we needed to advance our technology uh, when faced with a nation that could put a satellite in uh, orbit far before uh, we did. Uh, so we, we had to uh, respond in, in a way that was uh, very clear. 
and we made that commitment, and it was a relatively short-term commitment within the decade. <clears throat> now, when we made that commitment, I don't believe we knew exactly how to do it. <clears throat> there was a, a lot of talk about a Nova rocket that was on paper. It included parts of the Saturn V that was under development. The Nova rocket couldn't be ready by within the decade, uh, so it was sort of cast aside, and most people zeroed in on uh, a Saturn V, but it was discovered that uh, that couldn't quite do what we wanted to do, which is to go to the moon direct, turn around, and come back. So a very clever engineer, uh, my role model, uh, came up, John Hubolt, and said, we need to... Uh, uh, Modify our strategy. Now, most people characterize what he said as lunar orbit rendezvous. Now, let me correct that a little bit. What it really is is a specialized vehicle going from Earth to the moon and then another specialized vehicle, once you're at the moon, making the landing uh, and coming back up again. Now, fortunately, we could discard that, but the people were in it. Uh, and it had to join up, so it had to make a rendezvous to come back in the specialized vehicle, uh, the command module, which during launch could abort uh, and save the crew and, uh, and land in the ocean. Uh, and during reentry, it could uh, uh, come back uh, in a simple way uh, all the way back uh, and land. Uh, so that's, of course, what came to pass. That's what came to pass, and, and I think we have to understand that when we went from Sputnik to uh, landing on the moon, we started out with a one-man spacecraft, and we knew we were going to have a complex spacecraft for Apollo. Uh, we did not uh, continue to stretch the one-man spacecraft until Apollo was ready, or we didn't pump more money quickly into Apollo to make it... Uh, 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 come ahead sooner. We very wisely filled the gap. We filled the gap which served our purposes very nicely by putting two people in it and, and uh, making it maneuverable uh, so that it could do four things. So that it could do a controlled, computer-controlled re-entry. Uh, it could uh, do long duration. It could do spacewalking independent of the capsule and it could do a complex rendezvous. Those things were absolutely necessary. So uh, we, we waltzed from uh, Gemini 12 on into the Apollo program. We were set back uh, with the fire, but we happened to recover. The fire with Apollo 1. In a way uh, that, uh, in a way, gave us a much safer program. It went, it, we eliminated the Block 1 spacecraft and went directly to a docking spacecraft that could join up with the other vehicle instead of the Block 1, which didn't have that capability. So, so that enabled us to uh, test fly uh, on Apollo 7 and then immediately go to multi-spacecraft uh, docking in Earth orbit, rendezvous, and then docking in lunar orbit. We did progressive things. Uh, in the Gemini program, we could keep the public excited uh, with a mission about every two months. Uh, so, you so what you're, are you are you implying? I, I think you are that there was a plan, an executable plan, yeah. th at a, at a time that 
carried us to the destination. Carried us to the destination. Something and, that and it was it was a ways away then. I mean, a decade was a long time when when you start talking about things. Uh, I, I think we need to consider uh, uh, the attention span of the public, the, uh, the the term limit of people in Congress that want to get reelected, uh, and we want to keep uh, activity going that is. Uh, uh, inspirational for the young people being educated uh, that is something that happens during uh, the the terms of office uh, and so instead of saying uh, we need a destination let's specify it I think the Augustine Commission correctly looked at my unified space vision which went from 09 to 2036 and it clearly was moving right from the beginning toward uh, continued occupancy at Mars. I call it permanence at Mars. But it did so in a graduated way, I think the way we phased from uh, Mercury into Gemini into Apollo. Well, it's now, one thing's it, clear, Buzz, the president's budget is in hot water right now. I know, I, I know it is. I yeah. know it is. <laughs> and he's going to Florida uh, a, Absolutely, a state right. that that stands to lose many many jobs because of the canceled moon launch. So he is he is walking into the belly of the beast. We'll we'll know shortly perhaps what the fate of this budget will be. But it is an entirely unpopular, not only with this panel, certainly with yourself. But yeah, I, 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 your fi your five recommendations I think are brilliant to coordinate those. There we, we've all spoken around those, and some of us feel more strongly for one than the other. But the way you package them together makes entire sense. Okay, I, I, I have a few more things to say. I know you guys okay. uh, alternated back and forth, but give me a little bit more time. Okay. Uh, we filled the gap between Sputnik and the moon. We did not build the gap between uh, Apollo and the space shuttle. One of the reasons is uh, that for parochial reasons at Marshall, the early two-stage fully reusable uh, space shuttle had a cockpit with a crew of two in it. Why? So that Marshall would have astronauts in their vehicle. That was stupid. That was uh, time-consuming and budget-consuming. And we lost Marshall time. Space Flight Center in Houston, uh, We lost Alabama. time and had to quickly respond with solid rockets, which are not really reusable. Uh, but even at that, and using the Apollo equipment in Skylab and a joint mission with the Russians, we had a big gap from 1975 to 1981, almost six years. We're facing, at minimum, a five-year gap right now. Uh, why did we do it so well from Sputnik to landing on the moon when we can't transition uh, into shuttle from Apollo and, and from... Uh, uh, shuttle station uh, into exploration again. We, we Transition is a very difficult thing to do. But I'm just pointing out that, that the gap we had from Apollo to the shuttle, we should have learned from that. Instead, the Russians made a lot of pre progress with Salyut 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, uh, while we were sitting on the ground uh, doing nothing. We must have continuity in our program. We should not have a gap in U.S. capability to fly uh, astronauts into space. Well, Buzz, as a man who's actually walked on the moon, if you can't convince the president, I don't know that any of us 
Okay. okay. Now, let, let me go back to the implementation of the vision for space exploration. We were doing two things at once, trying to figure out how to implement that and listening to the accident board. Now, the accident board came up with a recommendation, and it said, separate crew and cargo, but it added the phrase in the launch vehicle. Now, I knew what that meant. That meant that a study that had been done that was going to put the crew on one solid rocket uh, and, and then uh, uh, develop another big rocket to send the cargo and the lander, in, instead of uh, having a common vehicle uh, on a conference call that I had with Admiral Gaven and Admiral Steidel, uh, I asked, why is the Columbia accident prompting you to penalize mission planners in the future by requiring that we develop two launch vehicles and, and not have one common launch vehicle and put as much uh, cargo, propellant, or crew and use as many of them as we want but have only one common universal launch vehicle. We didn't do that. That's why we're in the problem that we're in right now. And, and when we canceled uh, uh, Constellation, we essentially said that was bad implementation. Let me remind people that there was a crew exploration vehicle, and one of the major companies proposed a lifting body as the uh, uh, solution to the crew exploration vehicle. That was not selected or implemented. Uh, it would have retained the leadership that the shuttle established by having a continuation of a runway lander. It was not chosen. We went backwards to Apollo to a capsule landing in the ocean uh, just because it had been done before, and maybe it was simpler, maybe it was cheaper. Uh, but More familiar. It certainly wasn't U.S. leadership. And, and now... Okay, Buzz, we're low on time, so... You're low on time. Yeah. Now, after, after landing the shuttle for uh, 30 <laughs> years, uh, we want to go back to landing in the ocean? Baloney, that's not U.S. leadership. Uh, we need to accelerate uh, the various lifting body runway landers, orbital space planes, dinosaurs, HL-20s, all the things that have been studied in the past. Uh, Clipper uh, from the Russians, Bore 4 from the Russians. Uh, global leadership, uh, I think, requires that we concentrate and have a preference for the commercial uh, launch vehicle to low Earth orbit and back, that it is a lifting body runway lander. Now, we need okay, a common launch vehicle. We already have one with two solid rockets, engines, and a tank. Let's put the engines on the bottom of the tank, use the four-segment solid, put the payload on the top. The quickest shuttle-derived vehicle we can possibly get uh, will follow after stretching out shuttle missions. Okay, Buzz, you got, you got the whole thing figured out. I do have the whole thing figured out. And, so and, we'll get you audience at the and, White House. And, and we're, we're, we're flying missions back and forth to the moon with an exploration module that is roomy, that has room for three, four, or five people on long-duration spacecraft. That's nowhere in the current plan uh, to have a habitat that is interplanetary, that is long-duration, one or two years, that we can but land... On Phobos. It all makes sense. On Phobos. We're going to lock you in the East Wing with President Obama. Well, uh, just let me remind you that uh, Steve Squire said 
that he, if he was in orbit around Mars, could have done what rovers did uh, in one week instead of it taking five years. That's why we need to occupy Phobos once, twice, three times. And we need to practice by going to near-Earth objects. We need to maybe fly by a comet and, and uh, arrange that the upper stage crash into the comet. Okay, wait, but, okay. Um, Buzz, we don't create legislation here in this room. <laughs> We've no, got to put you I, in the White House <laughs> with, with, the, with, with the Office of Management and Budget to try to influence what our future will be. You got plans to do that? After you, after you appear next week on Dances with Stars. Well, yes. ab absolutely. You don't actually cancel all of Constellation. You combine Aries 1 and Aries 5. That's 1 plus 5 into <laughs> 6, but it's 3 plus 3. So you convert Constellation Aries effort into uh, Aries 3. You okay, plus it's the, getting late here in the East Coast. You You're in California the, time. You take the Orion, and instead of making it a direct entry, you make it an aero capture vehicle. You keep Orion going, aero capture, and you rendezvous in low Earth orbit with the HL-20, the lifting body runway lander. I bet that's going to come up in Florida when President Obama visits the captains of industry down there. Well, we specialize the launch vehicles to go to the moon. We need to specialize the launch vehicles coming back from Mars so we have an interplanetary space taxi and an exploration module, a big one and a small one. Uh, we need both of them for redundancy. They both Okay, Buzz, we, we, got, we have to go? I know. Thank we, you very much. <laughs> okay, so Buzz, thank you. Thank you for your contributions. Buzz Aldrin. And, and Buzz, um, what, what day are you on, on television next week? Uh, Monday, uh, 8, uh, uh, let's see, yeah, 8, 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern uh, Daylight Time. And that's on Fox? And you're on Dances with the Stars? I don't think it's Fox, no, ABC. I, I oh, think it's ABC. ABC, ABC, yeah. Dances with the Stars. You're going to moonwalk for everyone? That's, that's top secret information. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, Buzz Aldrin. Thanks, Buzz. We'll catch up with you. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.